Uh, I want to get right into the Advent season. This is week three of a series called Behold. That word behold is, is a word used in scripture to arrest our attention. And that's my prayer for this Christmas season, that the Holy Spirit would arrest our attention and fix it on Jesus. We began the series talking about beholding the King. And I'm going to light this first candle again that represents hope. Because the hope was, when Jesus came, that he would come as a king. That's what they were expecting the first time, and they got a different kind of king than they thought. But Jesus came to bring a kingdom. The second time he comes, he'll bring every bit of the fulfillment they had hoped the first time and more. Jesus fulfills our hopes. And then last week, as Pastor Rick shared the word, we talked about beholding the lamb. And this is the candle of love. This second candle, and how fitting, because if you want to know what love looks like in its greatest form, look at the Lamb of God who was slain at the cross. We behold love when we consider the sacrifice of Jesus. Now today, we're going to light the third candle, and the third one's a little lighter in color than the others. The third candle represents joy. And there is no greater moment of joy than when a parent first sees their newborn child. And so today, as we light this candle of joy, I want to invite you to behold the babe in the manger. I want you to consider with me today the Christ child. Now, during the Christmas season, we usually go to two Gospels in particular. We go to Matthew and we go to Luke. And for good reason, those guys tell us the whole Christmas story. They tell us about Mary and Joseph and the pregnancy and and Elizabeth and Zachariah. And they tell us about the wise men and the shepherds and the angels. And so when you want the Christmas story, that's where we go. But, But let me just give you a thought from Mark's Gospel because honestly, Mark gets no love at the Christmas season. Nobody reads Mark in December and it's his fault, it's not ours. He didn't say anything about Christmas. He just launches right into his gospel, and he's talking about Jesus as a 30-year-old man beginning his ministry, but he does say one thing. I'm going to give him his, his 15 minutes of fame, but really more like 15 seconds. One verse, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, here's what he says. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's it. You got to really kind of parse out the text to get the Christmas message in there. But there really is a Christmas message in there because Mark was writing to a Roman audience. He didn't bother giving the lineage of Jesus to the the Jews. He didn't bother explaining how Jesus actually was the son of David and he was a part of that lineage. He just goes right to his audience, the Romans. And the Roman people were actually familiar with having human beings written about as sons of God. In fact, even it was written about Caesar Augustus. He would be a savior of the world who will make wars to cease, and who will create order everywhere. Like That was actually a part of Roman literature about Caesar. So when Mark decides to write his gospel to a bunch of Roman people, what he does is he says, you have this this human over here, Caesar Augustus, who's been exalted to deity. Let me begin by telling you about the deity, about the Son of God, who has brought himself all the way down to be made flesh. And he introduces Jesus as the Son of God. Of God. But I don't want to talk about Mark anymore. I actually want to go to the fourth gospel today. And I want to go to John. And John, we don't really read John very much in the Christmas season either because 
Again, he didn't, he didn't tell the story. He didn't tell us about Mary and the baby and Bethlehem. And he skipped all of that. But in the beginning of John's gospel, he zooms all the way out and gives us the eternal perspective on the Christmas story. And he begins his gospel in John chapter 1 and verse 1 like this. And the, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. And now after this, John's going to launch right in to 30-year-old Jesus and John the Baptist preparing the way. But before he does that, he gives us one little Christmas statement. He explains who the Word is that was with God in the beginning and that made all things. In verse 14 of John chapter 1, he says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So before he skips over the whole Christmas story, he makes this statement to emphasize how important the incarnation is in the story of our redemption. How important it is that that God, Emmanuel, God with us, came near. He said, the word became flesh. And here's John's testimony. We beheld his glory. Not, not, Not the glory of angels in the skies. Not a heavenly vision. Flesh. We beheld his glory. We talked with him. We walked with him. We ate with him. We knew his personality. We knew what got under his skin. We knew what made him laugh. Listen, the gospel writers never try to explain the humanity of Jesus. In fact, when they write, they just assume that you understand that Jesus was human. Why wouldn't you assume that? People saw him. People talked with him. They knew where he worked with his father before he began his ministry. But John outlived all the rest. All the other disciples died. One of them, Judas, committed suicide. The other ten were all martyred. John outlived them all. He was an old man, the only one to live to a ripe old age, and he lived long enough to see the first heresy start to creep into the church. And the heresy that started to creep into the church was this teaching that Jesus wasn't actually a human. Can you imagine, like, it, it, maybe if your great-grandparents aren't living anymore, but they were alive in your lifetime, could you imagine somebody coming to you and saying, they didn't ever really exist? Like, what are you, what are you talking about? My grandfather, he, he never existed. I, I, I fished on his boat. Like, I sat at his table. Like, I've got pictures, you know. Like, that would be crazy to you. But this is John's reality. He starts hearing back from some of the churches, and they're, they're teaching that, that Jesus wasn't fully human. In fact, that's why John wrote three more epistles. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. They're, they're tucked in the back of your Bible before you get to Jude and Revelation. And in 2 John 7, here's what he said. He said, for many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. 
John's not pulling any punches here. He says, if somebody tells you Jesus, we beheld him. If they tell you Jesus didn't come in the flesh, that person's an antichrist. In 1 John chapter 4, he said it like this. He said, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they're of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. We could all say amen to that. He says, by this, you will know the spirit of God. Like, how are we going to know if it's a false prophet or a real prophet, John? Here's what he said to the church in the first century. By this, you'll know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. I don't know if that gives anybody the heebie-jeebies when you read that verse, like, whoo, he's already in the world. Like, there's so many people, they're like, who's the Antichrist? Where's he coming from? Is he coming out of Russia? Is he coming out of China? Is he coming out of the Middle East? Is he coming out of America? Who's the next president? Who's the Antichrist? Everybody wants to know. John said, don't worry about who the Antichrist is. What you need to worry about is the fact that the spirit of the Antichrist is already here. And the spirit of the Antichrist is any spirit that would cause you to think less of who Jesus really is. He said that spirit is already in the earth. He's telling you that Jesus wasn't human, that Jesus wasn't flesh. Paul dealt with the same kind of false teachers. and In fact, we, we looked at it pretty extensively as a church back in our Colossians series earlier this year. You might remember I told you that Paul was dealing with the Gnostics, and one of the Gnostic teachings was that all physical matter is evil. And that was a popular teaching, and it was trending, and people started buying into this philosophy that all Physical matter is evil. Even some of the Christians wanted to believe it. The problem was they also believed that Jesus never sinned in word, thought, or deed. So how do we, how do we rationalize that Jesus was perfect and sinless, but yet everything that is physical matter is evil? Oh, well, maybe we'll just believe that Jesus wasn't actually physically real. That he just appeared as flesh. That, that, that God showed up as a man, but he wasn't actually a man. And that was the teaching. In fact, some of the, the Gnostic romantics would even tell the story that when Jesus would walk a- along the shore, he didn't leave footprints. Ooh, doesn't that sound like a cheesy Christmas Hallmark movie? But I'm telling you, underneath that fancy little story is a lie from the pit of hell. Any teaching that would diminish who Jesus is in the fullness of his deity or his humanity is a false teaching from a spirit of Antichrist. And, and I want to say to that lie today, behold the babe. Behold the babe in the manger. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, says clearly, Behold, the virgin shall be with a child and bear a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. In Luke chapter 2, verse 10, when the angel appeared to the shepherds in the field, says, Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You'll find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths 
and lying in a manger. So the angel from heaven, this is not somebody's opinion. This is not somebody exegeting an Old Testament prophecy. This is a direct hotline from heaven. The angel says, the sign you're going to see that gives evidence to the good news that causes great joy to all the people is this, a baby. A baby in a manger. The fact that Jesus actually came, Emmanuel, God with us, that he he dwelt with us, it communicates to us that Jesus knows what you're feeling today. He knows what you're facing. He's not just some distant deity up there playing chess with the angels. He has been where you're at. He's felt what you faced. And I want you to behold the babe today. First of all, I want to encourage you, behold the body. Behold the body of this Lord. As I said a moment ago, the the gospel writers, they don't try to defend Jesus' humanity. I mean, if he had bad breath, they knew it. Like Nothing angelic about halitosis. Like, they, they knew the humanity of Jesus. John just simply introduces him like this. The word became flesh. In Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 2, verse 7, it says, Mary gave birth to him and wrapped him in swaddling clothes. That's about as plain and human as you can state a holy moment. She gave birth to him. Verse 40 says Jesus grew. In Luke chapter 2 and verse 52, it says it like this. It says, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So in that one verse, it says Jesus grew intellectually, he grew physically, he grew spiritually, and he grew socially. He grew. In other words, he, he start, just like you and me, he was human. He started here and he became something else. He grew up in all of those ways. And he didn't just grow up. The Bible says that Jesus grew tired. In John chapter 4, when he meets the Samaritan woman at the well, the Bible says he sat down at the well because he was weary from the journey. Jesus grew tired. In the wilderness, Jesus grew hungry. For 40 days and nights, he fasted. When Jesus was on the cross, he grew thirsty. One of the seven statements Jesus made from the cross was, I thirst. Even getting to the cross, Simon of Cyrene had to carry the cross being part of the way for Jesus because his physical body was giving out under the weight of the assignment. And then when he was on the cross, the Bible says in John's gospel, Jesus breathed his last breath, he hung his head, and he died. He doesn't make it spectacular or or with a lot of fanfare. He just says simply, the physical Jesus died. It just reminds me that that saving us was a physical job. It it amazes me how how some some Christians that that probably attend other services than this one, but but some some Christians don't want to be inconvenienced in any way in their service to the Lord. Can I just remind us that, that, that it wasn't an angel that carried that cross. It was human hands that took the nails. 
It was a human brow that was pierced with the crown of thorns. Jesus suffered, bled, and died for us. And some of us, we can't even put the energy together to clap our hands, to lift our voice, to, to shout unto God. We don't, want to, we don't want to exert ourselves in any way. Can I just remind you that this is a physical Savior? And He deserves a physical response. He deserves something of us. Can I encourage you to look again this Christmas? Behold the babe. He's worthy of our sacrifice. And he's still human, by the way. He's glorified. He's resurrected. But he still has a human body. Even to this day. In fact, after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to his disciples. And Luke records it in chapter 24 and verse 39. Jesus says, behold my hands and my feet. That it is I myself. Handle me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And then we, we learn in scripture that Jesus ascended back up into heaven in Acts chapter 1. They watched him go up into heaven. He sat down in a physical body at the right hand of God in majesty on high. And the angels told the men that were still staring up into the sky. He said, why do you stand here gazing? The same Jesus will come again in like manner. In other words, he's coming back in a physical body. Can I just encourage you today that, that heaven, don't, don't let Hollywood fool you. We're not going to be floating around like some translucent orb, just like floating through the atmosphere in heaven. No, we're going to have physical bodies. We're going to run. We're going to dance. We're going to play. We're going to swim. We're going to eat. Come on, somebody. Say amen. Like heaven's going to be amazing. You're going to have all five of your senses and some. Behold the baby, because part of the point is this. He came to be like us so that we could be like him. And that's what's going to happen. That's why having a glorified body is part of the blessed hope of the redeemed. Like that, that's part of the promise. It's, you know, praying a prayer of salvation, asking Jesus into your heart. It's about so much more than, than escaping the eternal flames of punishment the hope of the church is that, you know, Paul said it like this, outwardly these bodies are wasting away, but inwardly we're being renewed day by day. Like we know it gets better. It's no wonder that John held on to the hope of a glorified body. I mean, the dude was 90 years old. He lived a long life. In fact, some, you look at his life story and, and it started as a young man. He was he was the, the son of a fisherman named Zebedee. Him and his brother James, they, they had back-breaking physical work from the time they were kids. And then he, 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 gets, he gets to get out of that occupation. He becomes a follower of Jesus. And in Acts 5, he begins to be persecuted. And he was beaten with rods. We don't know how many more times that happened in his life and ministry. The third century church fathers say that they even tried to martyr John at one time by boiling him alive in a vat of oil, but it didn't take. So they exile him to the Isle of Patmos. Now, now that's not in scripture, that's extra biblical. I don't know 100% if it's true or not, but I'm going to tell you, if you're 90 plus years old in the first century, it doesn't matter if you've been dipped in hot oil or not. You know pain. You don't know Rite Aid, but you know pain, right? You don't know Flexol 454, you know pain. Aren't you glad we live in the century we live in? I'm telling you, he was looking forward to a glorified body. And in, on the Isle of Patmos, he had a revelation. Jesus appeared to him and, and he wrote down 
this revelation in the back of your Bible about a new heaven and a new earth. And of all the things that that got John excited about that blessed hope, he thought about a glorified body and he wrote this. In Revelation 21 and 4, he said, And God in that day will wipe every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. Hallelujah. For the former things have passed away. Jesus came as a babe, flesh. He dwelt among us. He became like us. But listen, he didn't just come in a human body. Consider this. He came with a human heart. Behold the heart of the babe. Jesus experienced the full spectrum of human emotion, save sin. He experienced everything that you feel, everything that you face. When he arrived at the house of his friend Lazarus, who had died, and he saw Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, come out to greet him, the Bible says that Jesus was grieved. In John 11, it says, Therefore, when Jesus saw their weeping, and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit, and he was troubled. Listen, Jesus had already told his disciples by this point, I'm going to Lazarus' house, and I'm going to raise him from the dead. He knew in his deity exactly what he was going to do. But in his humanity, when he walked into a room where his closest friends were grieving, when he saw that his close friend Lazarus had suffered with a fever and died, and he knew what that agony must have been like, the Bible says he was troubled in his spirit. Jesus knows what brokenness feels like. He wept in that moment, even knowing he was the resurrection and the life. Can I just encourage somebody today? Don't have a blue Christmas all by yourself, thinking that nobody understands what you're facing. Behold the manger. Behold the babe. He came in flesh, appearing so that you could know I have a God whose heart feels what I feel. He knows loss. He knows what it is to be abandoned. He knows what it is to be forsaken. In John chapter 12 and verse 27, Jesus said this. He said, now my soul is troubled. He was getting ready to go to the cross. He was dealing with the reality that that what has always been a plan in God's foreknowledge, and, and he had seen the indicators, and he had become certain of his path. Now it was about to become a painful reality. Just one chapter later in John 13, He's with his disciples around the table that we just celebrated in communion. And it says in verse 21, when Jesus had said these things to them, he was troubled in his spirit. And he testified and he said, most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. We've all felt that sting before, right? We all know what it is to be let down, to have a co-worker, a friend, a spouse, a parent, a child, to, to betray you. The, the, the one person, the one group that you thought always had your back, they turned it on you, and now you feel the sting and the heartbreak. Jesus felt that. Behold the body and behold the heart of the Word made flesh. When Jesus was praying in anguish, the writer of Hebrews describes what it looked like 
in his physical form. In Hebrews 5, 7, it says, in the days of his flesh. In other words, when he prays on his throne in heaven, it might not look like this. But in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who is able to save from death, he was heard because of his godly fear or because of his reverence. Listen to this description that when Jesus prayed he prayed with vehement cries and tears this is not some stoic sanctified saintly posture of intercession this is this is heart-wrenching gut-wrenching prayer this is an ugly cry (laughs) this is snot bubble coming out of your nose making a mess on the altar going after God vehemently crying out in tears Dr. Luke described the moment In the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus prayed, he said, being in such agony, he prayed more earnestly. And then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Come on, if you've ever travailed, if you've ever perspired in prayer, in agony over something, in turmoil over something, don't allow the enemy to think that that you're all alone or that you must be doing it wrong or you must not be walking by faith. I can assure you Jesus was walking by faith in this moment. But behold the heart of our Savior. John Calvin summed it up so well. He said, Christ has put on our feelings along with our flesh. Think about that. We always talk about how God put on flesh, but he also put on your feelings. Isaiah 53 describes what that looked like. It says in verse 3, speaking of Jesus, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him can I encourage you when you gaze into the manger this Christmas when you behold your Lord behold this thought that tiny heart would be broken that tiny heart would be despised it would be rejected people would turn their face from him those that loved him and followed him would all leave but here's the good news Jesus didn't face all that Just because your misery loves company. He faced it with a purpose. And Isaiah says in the next verse why Jesus endured such hostility. It says in verse 4, surely he has bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him as stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Isn't that what people still do today? Whenever you're going through something bad, they just assume, well, you must be doing something wrong. God must be mad at him. Man, she must have messed up big time. Like, God's going after her. He says, that's the way they looked at Jesus. But, verse 5 says, the reality is he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we're healed. Aren't you thankful that that Jesus came with a human heart to face your pain, your grief, 
your punishment. He bore it all. Would you behold with me for a moment the mind? The mind of our Lord. Jesus was fully God for sure. And God knows everything. He's omniscient. And yet, because Jesus is also fully man, Jesus didn't know everything. I know, let that rattle your cage for a minute. Jesus knows everything, but he doesn't know everything. In his deity, God knows it all, but Jesus in his humanity didn't. I'll give you an example in Luke chapter 2. I referenced it earlier. Verse, uh, verse 52 says, Jesus was a 12-year-old boy, and he grew in wisdom. He grew in stature. He grew in favor with God. Listen, you can't grow in something if you fully possess it, right? And so it was a process of development in Jesus' life. When the woman with the issue of blood came and pressed through the crowd and touched the hem of his garment, the Bible says Jesus felt power flow out of him. But then he asked the question, who touched me? Who did that? When he was talking to his disciples, not about his first advent, when he was born in a manger, but his second advent, when he comes again in power and glory, when he was describing that moment, Jesus said in Mark 13, 32, but on that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven know, nor the Son, but only the Father. See, how, how, in, the world, how in the world could Jesus be fully God and not know the time of the second coming? How could he not know? Well, Philippians tells us. Paul writes to the church in Philippians 2, and he encourages them. He says, let this mind be in you that is also in Christ Jesus. Another translation says, have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. And then he describes Jesus' attitude in the next verse. Who being in the form of God, did not consider... consider it robbery to be equal with God. Of course it wasn't robbery. He is God. Jesus is fully God. It's not robbing God's glory to say, I'm the son of God. He embraced that title. But it says in verse 7, he made himself of no reputation. In other words, that literally means he emptied himself of his privileges. He made himself of no reputation. He could have just come, he could have just been like, you know, I'm God, right? He could have just snapped his fingers. The Bible says that from the cross, he could have just called down 10,000 angels to rescue him. But he laid aside his privileges, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Jesus laid aside his privilege as God, and he took on a human mind. It's, it's amazing when you think about this paradox of who he really is because in James chapter 1 verse 13 it says God cannot be tempted. You can't tempt God. But in Hebrews 4 15 it says that Jesus is a high priest that can sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted at all points. That is common to man. Behold the mind of Christ today. It's that human mind that understands your struggle and mine that, that caused Jesus to cry out from the cross. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If, if Jesus knew that he was the lamb to be slain from the foundation of the world, why would he cry out? Why did he not just know in that moment that he was fulfilling the will and the work of God? Because when you've been brutally beaten and you've been in agony for six hours, 
and your, your body is stretched out on a human torture rack and all your friends have forsaken you and left you, the logical mind says, God has forgotten me. You ever been there before where just everything in your life just points to the conclusion that God has is just, I have, I've gone off his radar. He has lost track of my life. I don't know why God's allowing this to happen. Behold the mind of your Lord and Savior. He knows what you're feeling. He knows what you're facing. Can I just encourage somebody today, if you're in a place this Christmas season where you're at a loss for answers, like you, you just don't know where to turn. You don't know what to do. You don't know how to, how to, to get things going back in the right direction again. Let me encourage you. Behold the babe in the manger. Jesus, he grew up and he discovered and he fulfilled perfectly the will of God for his life. And he became the perfect example so that you can do the same thing. You, you might not be there yet, but, but follow Jesus. He is the word who became flesh. He took on a body. He took on a human mind. He took on a human heart. Do you know, he also took on a human will. Now, this is even more troubling. <laughs> this is hard to, to wrap my mind around, that, that Jesus could be fully God and that there is perfect unity between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Perfect unity. And yet, when Jesus came to the earth, in the form of of a baby, he had his own will. When, when God created mankind in his image, he created us with free will. N nobody's forced to serve God. Nobody's forced to honor God or to do God's will. You get to choose. And so even though Jesus didn't have a sinful nature, he did have a human nature. And that's why Jesus even said in John chapter 6 and verse 38, he said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. That's why on the most difficult night of his life, as he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing that those that were going to arrest him and put him on trial and crucify him were on their way. The Bible says in Matthew 26, he went a little farther from his disciples. He fell on his face praying and he said, Oh, my father. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He was talking about the cup of suffering. And the Bible says in that chapter that two more times he went back to that same place and he prayed the same prayer. Not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. There's nothing in my flesh, in my humanity that wants to experience a crown of thorns on my brow or, or nails driven through my hands and feet. He had seen crucifixion. Every Israelite in, Jer in Jerusalem had seen crucifixion. He knew the horrors. And he said, there's nothing in my humanity that wants this, but not my will, but yours be done. Can I encourage somebody today, if you're struggling to surrender your whole life to the will and the purpose that God has for you, Jesus came. Behold the baby. He came with a human will, and he wrestled it into submission to show you that you can live a life in full surrender to God's plan and purpose for you. You can submit your life to the will of God. Jesus did it by looking forward to a joy that was set before him. Hebrews 12.2 says, 
For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He despised the shame and he sat down at the right hand of God. You know what the joy was that was set before him? It was fellowship with you. It was the church redeemed. He already had perfect fellowship with God before he came as a babe in the manger. But what was missing was the relationship that was lost in the Garden of Eden. Mankind was separated from God. And so for the joy on the other side of the cross, Jesus endured. I would encourage you today to lift your eyes to the joy that is set before you. As our worship team comes, I want to go back one final time, and then we're going to pray. I want to go back to the words of John, the apostle, the one that Jesus loved. As I said earlier, he, he outlived all the other apostles. He outlived Mary, all those that knew Jesus. Most of them were all gone. And so he's at the end of his life. And there are actually people out there teaching that Jesus, that the babe in the manger wasn't really a babe in the manger. That the Son of God wasn't really the Son of Man. So he takes the quill and he takes the parchment and he begins to write 1 John chapter 1. And he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we have looked upon, our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested. See, in his gospel, he said the word became flesh. Now he's saying the same thing. The word was manifested, and we have seen, and we bear witness, and we declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested in a manger, the word of God that was manifested, verse 3 says, that which we have seen and have heard, we declare to you. Why? So that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We have fellowship with Jesus. He's fully God, but He's also fully man. I fellowship, John says, with his body, with his heart, with his mind, with his will, with his sense of humor. I, I knew him personally. And I want you to know, I want you to behold this Jesus. And, and then he says, why? Next verse, last verse. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. Come on, if, if you need, the, if you need the, the light of joy to be lit in your heart and life in this Christmas season, behold the babe in the manger. He knows what you're feeling. He knows what you're facing. He's acquainted with your sorrow. He carried your grief. He was bruised for your iniquities, crushed and despised and rejected so that you could have peace, so that you could be healed. Don't let anybody fool you into thinking that this is just some heavenly deity that we 
worship from a distance. Oh, he's that. But he's here and he's now. He's the word made flesh. I want to pray for you today. Would you bow your head with me all over this sanctuary? God, we thank you. We thank you for the revelation that comes to us annually at Christmas time. We see it in the town square. We see it on the, on the hearth in our homes. We see it in the children's books. This little baby lying in a manger. God, this is more than a sweet story. Help us to behold today a God who came near. Emmanuel, God with us. May every lie of the enemy that would say Jesus doesn't understand you. He's not sympathetic to your pain. He doesn't understand your brokenness. Every lie of the enemy that says Jesus doesn't know what I'm feeling. God, may that lie be cast down in Jesus' name. It comes from the spirit of the Antichrist. It's not of you. And Jesus, I pray that each of us would draw near and we would not just come with piety or religious tradition, but that we would come with our whole selves, body, soul, mind, and strength, that we would come to worship you for who you really are. I want to invite you, if you would stand with me, and we're going to close this service in just a moment. You know, Jesus said this. He was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And his answer was, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. But can I, can I tell you the good news? Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything that he hasn't already done to perfection. That's what Jesus did. He loved the Lord his God with his whole being. As we end this service today, we're going to open these altars for a few moments. If you'd like to have somebody pray with you, some of our prayer team is coming right now. And, and even as I pray a closing prayer, don't wait till the end when the aisles get congested and everybody's heading for the door. Even as I pray, if you just want a moment of ministry, I want to invite you to come to the altar now. I just want to pray over each and every one of us one final prayer. God, I, I believe there are people here today that, that struggle to worship you with their body the way that Jesus submitted his body to you. Your word says that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That our bodies are not our own. They're bought with a price. So therefore, honor God with your body, your word says. If there's anyone here today that is bound up in addiction or caught up in self-harm or self-mutilation, if there's anyone here that is giving themselves over to sexual addiction or immorality, God, may we behold the babe, the Christ who gave his whole self to the purpose of God and invites us to take up our cross and follow God today. May we submit our whole bodies to you. God, if there's anyone here today that's struggling in their mind with decisions, with direction, with knowing what to do, feeling the confusion of, of circumstances that would even make us think that you've forsaken us or forgotten us. God, may our minds be renewed today in Christ Jesus as we behold Him in all of His glory. God, if there's anyone struggling today with their heart, 
they're troubled in their spirit they're heartbroken maybe they've been forsaken or abandoned or lied about or manipulated God may we come near to a savior who is acquainted with our sorrow thank you Jesus that you allowed your heart to be broken so that ours could be mended and Lord if there's anyone here today that's struggling to surrender themselves to your will to your purpose for their life would you help them right now with the power of the Holy Spirit Lord even as the Apostle Paul said Lord enable us to want to do your will not just to do it but to want to do it with the power of your Holy Spirit would you give us fresh conviction fresh resolve then Lord we would commit to serve you and follow you all the days of our life for your glory and your honor in Christ's name we pray and all God's people said amen amen would you just bless the Lord with me one more time today Lord we love you we worship you